who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com right now on the live stream. And hello to all of our listeners at Spreaker as well and everybody in the gigantic Spreaker uh, chat room over at ACR as well. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Now, a great segment by Adam Gary. Uh, I do encourage people, if, you, if you're just tuning in now on the live stream, go back after the show. You can listen to that uh, with the editor of the Durand. Fantastic segment on the Russian hysteria and breaking it right down. Uh, it was amazing. But uh, our next guest uh, is an author of note, uh, publisher of many books, um, too many to mention, although my favorite of recent is The Lost Hegemon. And his name is F. William Angdahl. And he's joining us uh, on the live link right now uh, from Germany. And uh, we want to discuss one of his recent articles. But thank you for joining us, William. Patrick, it's good to be with you again. It's great to be with you. And such an important topic that we're going to talk about today, William. Uh, The title of this article, Trump and Netanyahu lead us to the brink of another oil war, but in the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights is a contested piece of land. And uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, William, but this was uh, annexed by Israel in 1981, but it was meant to be uh, uh, Syrian land, the the part that's being fought over. Um, But it was, I I think Israel took it in the the Yom Kippur War, or the Six-Day War, correct me which one, I'm not sure. Six-Day War in 1967, and there was a UN Security Council Resolution 242 that declared that uh, that Israeli taking of uh, Syrian land in the Golan Heights was illegal under UN Charter, and it's under the Geneva Convention, illegal. So no nation, including the United States, has until today recognized the legitimacy of Israeli occupation there. But they've hung, hung tight ever since. They brought in, as you point out, in 1981, they declared Israeli law is effective in the Golan Heights occupied by Israel. They brought in settlers and so forth. So uh, it's a complete brazen violation of international law. It's Syrian territory. It was Syrian territory. It still is Syrian territory and recognized as such under international law. And Israel is simply robbing that. And uh, Moshe Dayan, shortly before his death, gave an interview where he described exactly how uh, the Israeli Defense Forces in the 67 war manipulated the situation to provoke uh, Syria and then claim it was Israeli security that required them to occupy the Golan Heights. So uh, this is a raw power grab, grab and violation of every precept of the United Nations Charter and of the Geneva Conventions. And, and so the UNIFIL, peacekeepers are gone. They were driven out by... Uh, Al-Nusra front, from what I could gather, 
Um, so there were attacks which happened to coincide with Israeli airstrikes at the same time. Uh, well, I think they, they were working in cahoots, and uh, Israeli hospitals were caring for the al-Nusra front, uh, al-Qaeda, it doesn't matter what name you give these jerks. It's, uh, you know, you give them a black flag and a black mask, and it uh, doesn't matter who the people underneath are. But the, the point is, Israel used the uh, terrorists and probably supported them and financed them to drive the UN uh, peacekeeping force out of the Golan Heights so that they could have free reign. That happened after, in 2015, an Israeli company owned by a Newark, New Jersey oil company discovered a mammoth oil find in the Golan Heights. And wow. that changed the game plan for the whole uh, Israeli relationship to, to the Syrian-Middle East war. And, and what's the name of this company, and who is uh, on its board of directors? Who's behind this this oil this oil company that uh, looks like it's based in the United States? Well, Patrick, I grew up in Texas. I know the oil business pretty well over several decades that I've been researching it as a journalist, as an author. And I went to college in New Jersey. I worked in Newark, New Jersey. And I can tell you, Newark, New Jersey is the least likely place I can imagine to find an international oil company. <laughs> and there you have something called Genie Energy, as in the genie comes out of the box or whatever. And they have a subsidiary in Israel the uh, Israeli subsidiary is the one who gave the press conference about, it's called Afek Oil and Gas, AFEK. And uh, Genie Energy, if you dig a little bit into this, this is no ordinary penny stock oil company. On its board of international advisors is someone whose name should be known to all your listeners quite well, the former CEO of Halliburton, the biggest oil jewel physics company in the world, oil field services company, Dick Cheney, former CIA head, chairman of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies at pro-Israel neocon uh, shop in Washington, James Woolsey, by the way, business partner of Mike Flynn, who recently was forced to resign. I'll get to that perhaps later if we have time. Okay. It includes... Of all the interesting people, this Newark, New Jersey oil company that no one had ever heard of, Jacob Lord Rothschild of the London banking dynasty, the former business partner of convicted Russian oligarch Michel Khodorkovsky, and before his arrest, Khodorkovsky secretly tried to transfer his Yukos oil shares that he had illegally acquired to Jacob Rothschild. So... This is, uh, there are other people like Bill Richardson, Clinton's energy secretary, uh, Rupert Murdoch, the owner of uh, Trump's favorite Fox News TV, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who orchestrated the rape of Russia under Yeltsin in the 1990s as Treasury Secretary, assistant and then Treasury Secretary, and hedge fund billionaire Michael Steinhardt, who is a philanthropic so-called friend of Israel and a friend of Mark Rich, who was very close to the Israeli Mossad. So this is the oil company whose Israeli offshoot, Afek Energy, 
announced on Israeli television uh, back in October 2015, just after Russia had surprised the world with the announcement that it had accepted the request of the elected president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, to militarily intervene against ISIS and al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. And the chief geologist from Genie Energy, Israeli subsidiary Afik, told Israeli Channel 2 that they had found a major oil reservoir in the Golan Heights, 350 meters thick, whereas an average worldwide strata are for oil reservoirs is about 20 to 30 meters. So 10 times the size of an average good oil find, huge amount of oil. And this is before exploration wells were drilled. So this is, this is when I say, is uh, Golden Heights going to be the subject of a new oil war? This is really uh, very much what we're talking about. It's the first discovery of a huge oil find where Israel thinks it can grab control of it directly because de facto the war is raging in Syria. And they say, well, there's no government in Syria. Therefore, we have a right for humanitarian reasons to stay in ownership of the Golden Heights. And we want the Trump administration to back us on that. And, and, and do you think the, the Trump administration is uh, in lockstep with Israel on this Golan Heights agenda? I think with all that's going on in Washington, you know, the forced resignation of, of Mike Flynn, not for the Russia business, but for his consulting company and their consulting for Erdogan in Turkey, uh, that has to do with another theme of, of gas pipelines from uh the Middle East through Turkey, is that uh, Trump's whole cabinet array, his ambassador to Israel, everything around Trump, is pointing to the fact that he would dearly love to give this choice plum to Benjamin Netanyahu as a gesture of friendship. If it will politically happen or not, that's not yet clear. He's been very careful because he would be the first president since 1967 who would go against UN Security Council resolutions 242 and uh, a later resolution after 1981 that declare the Israeli occupation violation of international law. Now, that doesn't mean Trump has any uh, great compunctions about violating international law with the name of the United States. But I think they're, they're playing it very careful. But uh, I think what is likely to happen is Israel will do what uh, Moshe Dayan, the general in the 67 six-day war, said uh, their tactic was, you create incidents around the Golan Heights or around Syria, and then by making incursions that are not publicized, like the bombing of, of outside of Damascus of the so-called Hezbollah depot, arms depot, and a, a drone strike in the Golan Heights against a commander close to Bashar al-Assad. And you create the pretext that Syria will react, as it did with the anti-missile uh, strike against the illegal Israeli air incursion into Syria, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then you 
the Western mainstream media doesn't care about the truth. They care about uh, what's, you know, what's the line of the day from Washington, from the NATO or the Pentagon. So suddenly it'll be this lawless Bashar al-Assad uh, making terror against Israel, threatening Israeli populations, Israeli uh, evacuation plans have been prepared for the settlements along the Israeli side of the Golan Heights, etc. So I think that's how they're going to try to do it. And then Trump will probably try to come in and say, well, we have to support Israel as the legitimate peace force in the Golan Heights. Say nothing, of course, about the oil. And uh, I'm going to say also, I just saw the story, William, I don't know if you saw it this week, uh, Israel conducts military drill to get ready for next real war with Hezbollah. So presumably, that does that mean uh, an attack on Lebanon, for instance, uh, to cut off the uh, Damascus road between Beirut and Damascus or, or to maybe, you know, reinsert itself into into Lebanon uh, to, I guess, fight Hezbollah. Is, is this also possibly on the cards? It's possibly on the cards, uh, Patrick, but the, the, the problem is the Trump project is running amok, and I don't know if it's because this huge internal faction fight from the liberal globalist faction against the great hero of peace and justice and uh, American jobs, Donald Trump. I don't believe that uh, crap for a minute, excuse me. But uh, (laughs) they haven't got their act together. And uh, the idea that Donald Trump, as was reported in the U.S. media about a week ago, that Donald Trump has turned over all decisions on the Middle East or military engagements in Somalia or Yemen or whatever, to the general, who is Secretary of Defense, Mad Dog Mattis, and to the Pentagon, is a a very, let's say, disturbing sign. But they don't have their act together. If you think Mad Dog Mattis has the uh, emotional, moral depth to bring peace into the Middle East, uh, this is the man, he's called Mad Dog because he is mad. He's uh, quoted as having said, from time to time, it's good to kill another human being. So this guy, it's no longer civilians in charge of the Pentagon. It's its Mad Dog Mattis, uh, you know, this psychopath. And uh, I don't care how many Greek history books he's read about the Peloponnesian Wars or whatever. Uh, the guy is a psychopath. Uh, just look at his profile, look at his uh, military history. So if he's in charge of waging war, that's that's what he's trained to do, and he's going to kill people left and right. And uh, I think at a certain point, it's going to blow up in the face of the American, uh, I don't call them establishment, I call them American patriarchy. The The chairman of the board of the American patriarchy just kicked the bucket D. Rockefeller, but but uh, the patriarchy is still very much there, and they're desperately trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The thirty years of wrong economic policy, the hollowing out of the American economy through globalization, outsourcing of jobs, and so all the things that Trump quite rightly mentioned in his campaign, but he's not going to fix it. Uh, 
that has left a generation of, to put it bluntly, morons, uh, the generation born in the 60s, the 70s, who are now in uh, middle-level bureaucracy positions in the civil service, uh, or in these think tanks, so-called think tanks, uh, formulating policy. And they don't have the depth. Even a, a, a genocidal son of a bitch like Henry Kissinger, at age 93, has more understanding of history and the importance of geopolitics than anybody I can see in Washington today. They just don't have a clue. Yeah, no, you're, you're right on that fact, um, William. You know, I listened during the campaign, and when, when Donald Trump was asked point blank, you know, what, what are you going to do about this? How will you defeat ISIS? How will you deal with Syria? And he always deferred to the generals. He said, I will let the generals, will, or my secretary of defense, I trust them. They'll tell me what the best thing to do is. And, you know, while I can see that was a pragmatic answer for Donald Trump at the time, you know, constantly being scrutinized by the media, it, it's not good in my opinion anyway for a chief executive to make that kind of a statement on the most important matters of state to say that you're always going to defer to uh, the experts um, it yeah. almost impl it almost implies that you yourself have no clue of what well, he has no clue <laughs> he's showtime I mean uh, Patrick this guy is pure science fiction there is not a brain in his head that's suited to be a president of the United States the greatest power on earth there is nothing up there. He is just pure rage, fear-inducing uh, presence, uh, and that's why the patriarchy chose him. I think he was put in there. He wasn't. He didn't defy the deep state and uh, establishment. So he was put in there by them. Hillary Clinton. This was all showtime. All of the Republican candidates, Jeb Bush, and so forth. They knew, or more or less. Uh, felt that uh, they weren't going to be it. They wanted a, a pit bull, and Donald Trump was the pit bull that they chose. Hillary Clinton, you, you would never have the patriarchs choose a woman, even Hillary Clinton, who's questionable if she's a woman in the true feminine sense, but you would never have a woman as president if you're going to rev up the American population for war against Russia, China, and Iran, and who knows who. And that is the job that Trump was put in there to do. So yeah. let's see how it unfolds. I think it's going to fail colossally. And so far, it looks like it's uh, the wheels are flying off left and right. But uh, for the sake of the world and world peace, I hope so. Well, uh, you know, look at uh, look at, you know, General Mattis, some of his statements. I don't know if you've uh, noticed any of the th things he said in public. <laughs> we need to have a, decla a congressional declaration of war or to make sort of our uh, uh, roles in Syria and Yemen a little bit more so-called official, I guess. Uh, you, yes. could throw, you could throw Iraq in there, too. You know, we should no. they should be de-escalating. They should be uh, uh, lobbying or stop helping Saudi Arabia basically carpet bomb Yemen for starters. And yeah. then what's happening in Mosul not being reported at all very much at all, which is a, you know, a, a lot of dead civilians, basically, uh, which is the price of a win in Mosul. And I see, is the same thing going to happen in Raqqa? And, you know, where is General Mattis going to be in two months uh, when the body bags start mounting up? Yeah, yeah. And fortunately, Russia, Putin and uh, Lavrov and the Security Council in Russia did not take the bait 
They uh, were very, you know, Putin is a, a very good chess player. And so he played his moves carefully, of course, being open if there was a new president and a new team that was open to lift the sanctions against Russia, why not at least have dialogue? But uh, they very early realized that this uh, was nothing but divide and rule uh, tactics by by the deep state to try to split off the triangle, Eurasian triangle that comprises China, Russia, and Iran as the structural core of a economic space that can challenge the U.S. dollar and challenge the United States' uh, sole superpower, the, the global fascist dictatorship that, uh, that has been U.S. policy uh, since really since World War II. And uh, get, getting back to um, Jacob Rothschild, I thought it was interesting because uh, there's a company, uh, you mentioned Jacob Rothschild being uh, uh, a part of uh, Afric uh, Oil or Afric Energy. Well, no, he's, he's on the board of Genie Energy, the parent company. In New oh, York. the parent company. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So his son, Nat Rothschild, um, together with Tony Hayward, um, basically set up Janelle Energy. Okay, and with a Turkish partner as well. And oh. they are basically in this sort of transaction chain with some of the black market oil that ISIS has been selling and then laundering uh, into sort of legitimate sales cash on the other end. That's the son, Nat Rothschild, of Jacob uh, Rothschild. Um, okay. Yeah. Interesting. This is, uh, I didn't know. The uh, I don't have information that that's still operational since the rapprochement between uh, Erdogan and Putin after the, especially after the July failed coup by the CIA against Erdogan. And all the information that I have is that that was a CIA failed coup yeah. using Fatula Gulen networks. In, in, if, if you read that part of The Lost Hegemon, my book, uh, whom the gods would destroy on, on the relation between the CIA and the Muslim Brotherhood. Fatula Gulen is probably one of the most strategic projects of the CIA in the post-war period. Huge, huge project. And he was on the verge of taking over the military in Turkey, the judiciary, the police, and the education system. And if you have control of that, you've got the, you know, you've got it. And at a certain point in 2013, there was a huge fallout between Gulen and Erdogan, who began to f deviate from the NATO program a little bit. And finally, in May of this year, he really deviated by getting rid of Davatolu, his foreign minister, pro-NATO foreign minister, the architect of the Turkish involvement in Syria. So I don't know if Turkey is still doing through the son of Net, uh, of Erdogan, who ran, who's the energy, the son-in-law is the energy minister, but the son was running these private companies. So I, I simply don't have the information if that's still going on. I would suspect it might be on a low profile at this point. Yeah, you know, this was from a couple of years ago. It was a, G yeah. a company oh. called Janelle, Janelle mm -hmm. Energy. But but what's interesting? So t tell us where 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 does and everyone wants to know, William. Where does um, Erdogan uh, sit right now? Where does Turkey sit in this uh, this kind of conclave that's 
created in north north uh, eastern Syria right now. You've got Turkey, you've got U.S. troops, you've got Kurdish YPG forces under the Syrian Democratic Forces auspices, uh, and the, you have Russia as well and the Syrian army. You have so many players there. What is everyone wants to know, William? I'm, we we kind of know what the U.S. is. Uh, the U.S. seems to be interested in furthering a uh, partition of Syria. What is Turkey's interest, though, in, in this? Well, I think Erdogan, let's say Erdogan's interest. Erdogan's interest uh, is several things. The problem with Erdogan is the man does not have a clear strategic vision. Xi Jinping, the president of China, uh, he's by no means a saint. He's a cold, hard, ruthless leader, but he has a clear vision with the Silk Road economic uh, one belt one road infrastructure project of the economic future of Eurasia. He has a very clear thought out vision and it's growing by the day and it's a beautiful vision. Putin has a certain vision. He's crippled by his lack of understanding of monetary policy and uh, true economics but uh, he has a clear vision of what he wants to do to stabilize uh, the nation-state of, of Russia and create uh, something that is sovereign against the whole globalization pressures and the color revolutions. Erdogan is an opportunist, and he flip-flops. And that's I think that's what uh, the people around Trump are counting on, that they, if you look at what Trump's people have done in the first days in office, they have focused on trying to bring back into the family fold two strategic countries that had really gone off the reservation. One, Turkey under Erdogan, and number two, Philippines under Duterte. So they sent Tillerson, this uh, genial old oil man from ExxonMobil, the Rockefeller uh, crown jewel of oil, to try to say soothing words uh, to each of those. And the problem is there's such an ungodly mess in Syria. It's uh, six years of U.S.-inspired war. It's not a Bashar al-Assad-inspired war. It's an attempt to hold the nation together, a nation with uh, thousands of years of history as a multi-ethnic state, to hold that together against attempts by NATO, essentially by the U.S., to carve up Syria and take control of its potential oil pipeline routes from Qatar in the Persian Gulf, hugest, huge oil, uh, gas field rather, uh, to prevent Iran from becoming a major uh, gas exporter to the European Union through, through Syria. And uh, They've got to try to bring Turkey back into the fold, but they don't have much to offer. And I think that's what Erdogan begins to smell. The other side, Putin, does not want Turkey to be part of a partition of Syria because he has certain concepts of an integral Syrian state and uh, let the Syrian people decide who their president is, who their government, in fair elections when the war is over. So Erdogan has a big problem with the Kurdish populations 
the so-called Kurdistan, if you look at a map, a huge chunk of it is in southeastern Turkey on the border of Syria. Another huge chunk of it is in Syria on the border to Turkey. Another huge chunk of it goes up north to Iran. So if the United States is in the Syrian part of, of the Kurdish areas and playing games with autonomy and so forth to get that immediately Erdogan is, is in a confrontation with Washington. Now, Putin, for I think very different reasons, is defending the existence of the Syrian state without Turkish occupation. So it's, it's to call it a mess is an understatement. It's just colossal. Well, it, what's, it looks like to me, William, that there's there's multiple stakeholders here. It, it seems to me you've got the U.S. and Israel both kind of pushing this idea of Kurdish uh, uh, autonomy. Um, yeah. And it seems like the U.S. has given the Kurdish uh, YPG forces there in Syria. They bought them off with guns, possibly paying the soldiers. I don't know for sure, but um, yeah. it, it, it indicates there's something going on there. And then I'm so very, the, big and very long standing, by the way. And there's a quid. That's a quid pro quo, isn't it? That uh, that the Kurdish uh, uh, leadership will push for some sort of autonomy and a federalized autonomy uh, in exchange for cooperation with the U.S. in this. So I can see that. My 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 question is, um, you know, how successful, you know, will Syria accept that, or will they reject having a piece of their country? Because the Kurdish are not indigenous. In Syria, they they moved there maybe a uh, hundred or hundred and fifty years ago, right? Um, they migrated there, so they and they've always been treated equally in Syria. And yeah. I think a lot of Syrian people are kind of um, upset that they would be calling for autonomy after being treated equally and well for so many generations. <clears throat> yeah. So I don't well, know how the, how is this going to play out from a Syrian point of view. Well, Bashar al-Assad is in a very weak position because you have the United States military with boots on the ground coming in with several hundred and soon it will be several thousand like uh, in Vietnam in the 60s. And they're going to start all sorts of military actions in the country uninvited, illegally, violation of international law. And what will Russia do at that point? What will Syria do at that point? It's it's uh, and you have these psychopathic generals in the Pentagon making the decisions on all of this. Yeah, my my, my biggest fear, William, is um, and your final thoughts here before we wrap the segment up. But yeah, my, my biggest fear is that if Israel gets involved militarily in this mix on it on a kind of more official level, um, I think then the U.S. is locked in. I think, with, with this administration into some sort of a protracted situation in yeah. Syria. Um, your final thoughts on this and what, what are things that we should look out for in this developing situation? I, to be honest, am not optimistic. I, I think the Russians know that they're in a very uh, difficult situation in the Syrian involvement. The Everybody is lying to everybody on, on this, this whole involvement. The Turkish are lying. The U.S. is lying. The United Nations mediators are lying. Uh, 
so and the Kurdish are lying. So how how do you you know how do you sort that out? The U.S. wants to destroy a single state called Syria. That is U.S. policy going back to 9-11, as, as General Wesley Clark stated it at the, at the time. He was shown this document, seven states that we're going to bring down, beginning with Iraq, and that included Somalia, Yemen, Libya, and Syria. Yeah, so how that plays out. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Well, let's hope that there is a constitutional crisis in the United States around impeachment of Donald Trump that paralyzes a certain uh, forward march of, of these generals. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an extremely dangerous situation in my view. Well, Not no, only for the Syrian, for the world peace. Yeah, for the world, exactly. You know, so we uh, we hope uh, we hope that somehow this situation might diffuse. That would be the best uh, possible outcome uh, for most people, I think, uh, in the region. Um, so, but uh, we thank you for bringing this. This is a really important story, and obviously, thank you for uh, bringing it to light um, this week, uh, William. And you can see William Angdahl's work in many, many places online, uh, including New Eastern Outlook, but also at uh, WilliamAngdahl.com. And uh, if you just want to give a shout out uh, to, uh, you know, ha- I-, I think the Lost Hegemon is um, somewhat popular, William. I know a lot of people that yeah. have bought that book. Yeah. Um, are you working on anything else right now? I'm in the process of editing a new book called Fake Democracy, Washington Weaponizes Human Rights, about the entire history of the creation of the National Endowment for democracy in the 1980s under Reagan and Bill Casey, the head of Reagan CIA, to do privately, under cover of private NGOs, what the CIA used to do. And how that was involved in the rape of Russia under Yeltsin in the 1990s, in the uh, shock therapy in Poland uh, shortly before that, in the war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, and in the attempted destabilization, unsuccessful, uh, in China in 1989, the Tiananmen Square, and right up to the Arab Spring. So this this is an extremely important book, uh, in my view, and it, uh, it should be online in publication in about two months, I would estimate, after the editing and uh, cover selection and so forth. And, uh, yeah, that's... If people haven't uh, seen my book, The Lost Hegemon, and have any idea of how important this whole uh, radicalization of Islam is, in not only in Europe, but in the United States, Fatula Gulen has charter schools, taxpayer-supported charter schools, more than 100 across the United States, that are training Islamic terrorists. So, uh, and that's documented in, in my book, The Lost Hegemon. So, uh, I think people would find it a, a real eye-opener. I, I know of nothing comparable that uh, deals with all this. So uh, if you haven't got it, please get a hold of that through Amazon. And then watch my website, com for the uh, release of the new book, Fake Democracy. 
Well, that fake, fake. So I, I assume that uh, George Soros will feature in uh, somewhere in your book, <laughs> Fake Democracy, right? You have to buy it and see, but I, I think your hunch might have some validity. Yeah, no, that is an important book. I'm looking forward to that as well as a, a resource for my own research uh, and work going forward. And I'm very happy that you put that together, William, uh, because it's so necessary and so uh, valuable uh, in this conversation. And we thank you for that and for all your work. Uh, William Angdahl, thank you. And it's great to talk to you once again. Thank you, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, F. William Angdahl, author of The Lost Hegemon, For Whom the Gods Will Destroy, and Fake Democracy, which will be coming out in a couple of months. We're really looking forward to that. We're gonna, we got an uh, uh, update from Syria. Uh, the, uh, the dam, which has been damaged, which threatens many lives. Uh, we've got a reporter uh, on the ground in the Middle East who's going to join us after the break. Stephen Sohuni is going to give us an update on that situation. So stick around. After these messages, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. One of the things that I've used on the Google is uh, to pull up maps. I have filters on internets. Fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. It fooled me. We can't get fooled again. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets.